0: chapter 1 of main street by sinclair lewis this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter 1 1 on a hill by the mississippi where chippewa's camped two generations ago a girl stood in relief against the cornflower blue of northern sky she saw no indians now she saw flour mills and the blinking windows of skyscrapers in minneapolis and st paul nor was she thinking of squaws and portages, and the Yankee fur-traders whose shadows were all about her. She was meditating upon walnut fudge, the plays of Briou, the reasons why heels run over, and the fact that the chemistry instructor had stared at the new coiffure which concealed her ears. A breeze which had crossed a thousand miles of wheatlands bellied her taffeta skirt in a line so graceful, so full of animation and moving beauty, that the heart of a chance watcher on the lower road tightened to wistfulness over the quality of suspended freedom. She lifted her arms, she leaned back against the wind, her skirt dipped and flared, a lock blew wild. A girl on a hilltop, credulous, plastic, young. Drinking the air as she longed to drink life. The eternal aching comedy of expectant youth. It is Carol Milford fleeing for an hour from Blodgett College. The days of pioneering, of lassies in sunbonnets and bears killed with axes in piney clearings, are deader now than Camelot, and a rebellious girl is the spirit of that bewildered empire called the American Middle West. 2. Blodgett College is on the edge of Minneapolis. It is a bulwark of sound religion. It is still combating the recent heresies of Voltaire, Darwin, and Robert Ingersoll. Pious families in Minnesota, Iowa, Wisconsin, the Dakotas, send their children thither, and Blodgett protects them from the wickedness of the universities. But it secretes friendly girls, young men who sing, and one lady instructress who really likes Milton and Carlyle. So the four years which Carol spent at Blodgett were not altogether wasted. The smallness of the school, the fewness of rivals, permitted her to experiment with her perilous versatility. She played tennis, gave chafing-dish parties, took a graduate seminar in the drama, went toosing and joined half a dozen societies for the practice of the arts or the tense stalking of a thing called general culture. In her class there were two or three prettier girls, but none more eager. She was noticeable equally in the classroom grind and at dances, though out of the three hundred students of Blodgett scores recited more accurately and dozens bostoned more smoothly. Every cell of her body was alive—thin wrists, quince-blossom skin, ingenue eyes, black hair. The other girls in her dormitory marveled at the slightness of her body when they saw her in sheer negligee, or darting out wet from a shower-bath. She seemed then but half as large as they had supposed, a fragile child who must be cloaked with understanding kindness. "'Psychic,' the girls whispered, and, "'spiritual!' Yet so radioactive were her nerves, so adventurous her trust in rather vaguely conceived sweetness and light, that she was more energetic than any of the hulking young women who, with calves bulging in heavy-ribbed woolen stockings beneath decorous blue serge-bloomers, thuddingly galloped across the floor of the gym in practice for the Blodgett ladies' basketball team. Even when she was tired her dark eyes were observant. She did not yet know the immense ability of the world to be casually cruel and proudly dull, but if she should ever learn those dismaying powers her eyes would never become sullen or heavy or roomily amorous. For all her enthusiasms, for all the fondness and the crushes which she inspired. Carol's acquaintances were shy of her. When she was most ardently singing hymns or planning deviltry she yet seemed gently aloof and critical. She was credulous, perhaps, a born hero-worshipper. Yet she did question and examine unceasingly. Whatever she might become, she would never be static. Her versatility ensnared her. By turns she hoped to discover that she had an unusual voice, a talent for the piano, the ability to act, to write, to manage organizations. Always she was disappointed, but always she ever vested anew, over the student volunteers who intended to become missionaries, over painting scenery for the dramatic club, over soliciting advertisements for the college magazine. She was on the peak that Sunday afternoon when she played in chapel. Out of the dusk her violin took up the organ theme, and the candlelight revealed her in a straight golden frock, her arm arched to the bow, her lips serious. Every man fell in love then with religion and carol. Throughout senior year she anxiously related all her experiments and partial successes to a career. Daily, on the library steps or in the hall of the main building, the coeds talked of, what shall we do when we finish college? Even the girls who knew that they were going to be married pretended to be considering important business positions. Even they who knew that they would have to work hinted about fabulous suitors. As for Carol, she was an orphan. Her only near relative was a vanilla-flavored sister married to an optician in St. Paul. She had used most of the money from her father's estate. She was not in love, that is, not often, nor even long at a time she would earn her living. But how she was to earn it, how she was to conquer the world almost entirely for the world's own good, she did not see. Most of the girls who were not betrothed meant to be teachers. Of these there were two sorts—careless young women who admitted that they intended to leave the beastly classroom and grubby children the minute they had a chance to marry and studious, sometimes bulbous-browed and pop-eyed maidens, who at class prayer-meetings requested God to guide their feet along the paths of greatest usefulness. Neither sort tempted Carol. The former seemed insincere, a favorite word of hers at this era. The earnest virgins were, she fancied, as likely to do harm as to do good by their faith in the value of parsing Caesar. At various times during senior year, Carol finally decided upon studying law, writing motion picture scenarios, professional nursing, and marrying an unidentified hero. Then she found a hobby in sociology. The sociology instructor was new. He was married, and therefore taboo, but he had come from Boston, he had lived among poets and socialists and Jews and millionaire uplifters at the university settlement in New York, and he had a beautiful white strong neck. He led a giggling class through the prisons, the charity bureaus, the employment agencies of Minneapolis and St. Paul. Trailing at the end of the line, Carol was indignant at the prodding curiosity of the others, their manner of staring at the poor as at a zoo. She felt herself a great liberator. She put her hand to her mouth, her forefinger and thumb quite painfully pinching her lower lip, and frowned and enjoyed being aloof. A classmate named Stuart Snyder, a competent, bulky young man in a gray flannel shirt, a rusty black bow-tie, and the green and purple class cap, grumbled to her as they walked behind the others in the muck of the South St. Paul stockyards. "'These college chumps make me tired. They're so top-lofty. They ought to have worked on the farm, the way I have. These workmen put it all over them.' "'I just love common workmen,' glowed Carol. Only you don't want to forget that common workmen don't think they're common." You're right. I apologize. Carol's brows lifted in the astonishment of emotion, in a glory of abasement. Her eyes mothered the world. Stuart Snyder peered at her. He rammed his large red fists into his pockets, he jerked them out, he resolutely got rid of them by clenching his hands behind him, and he stammered, I know. You get people most of these darn co-eds. Say, Carol, you could do a lot for people. Oh, oh, well, you know, sympathy and everything. If you were—say you were a lawyer's wife. You'd understand his clients. I'm going to be a lawyer. I admit I fall down in sympathy sometimes. I get so doggone impatient with people that can't stand the gaff. You'd be good for a fellow that was too serious. Make him more— more, you know, sympathetic." His slightly pouting lips, his mastiff eyes, were begging her to beg him to go on. She fled from the steamroller of his sentiment. She cried, "'Oh, see those poor sheep! Millions and millions of them!' She darted on. Stuart was not interesting. He hadn't a shapely white neck, and he had never lived among celebrated reformers. She wanted, just now, to have a cell in a settlement house, like a nun without the bother of a black robe, and be kind and read Bernard Shaw and enormously improve a horde of grateful poor. The supplementary reading in sociology led her to a book on village improvement, tree planting, town pageants, girls' clubs. It had pictures of greens and garden walls in France, New England, Pennsylvania. She had picked it up carelessly with a slight yawn which she patted down with her fingertips as delicately as a cat. She dipped into the book, lounging on her window-seat, with her slim, Lyle-stockinged legs crossed, and her knees up under her chin. She stroked a satin pillow while she read. About her was the clothy exuberance of a blodgett college room, cretonne-covered window-seat, photographs of girls, a carbon print of the Coliseum, a chafing-dish, And a dozen pillows embroidered or beaded or pyrographed. Shockingly out of place was a miniature of the dancing bacchante. It was the only trace of Carol in the room. She had inherited the rest from generations of girl students. It was as a part of all this commonplaceness that she regarded the treatise on village improvement. But she suddenly stopped fidgeting. She strode into the book. She had fled halfway through it before the three o'clock bell called her to the class in English history. She sighed. "'That's what I'll do after college. I'll get my hands on one of these prairie towns and make it beautiful. Be an inspiration. I suppose I'd better become a teacher then, but—' "'I won't be that kind of a teacher. I won't drone. Why should they have all the garden suburbs on Long Island? Nobody has done anything with the ugly towns here in the Northwest except hold revivals and build libraries to contain the Elsie books. I'll 'em put in a village green, and darling cottages, and a quaint main street." Thus she triumphed through the class, which was a typical blodget contest between a dreary teacher and unwilling children of twenty, won by the teacher because his opponents had to answer his questions, while their treacherous queries he could counter by demanding, "'Have you looked that up in the library?' Well, then, suppose you do?" The history instructor was a retired minister. He was sarcastic to-day. He begged of sporting young Mr. Charlie Holmberg. Now, Charles, would it interrupt your undoubtedly fascinating pursuit of that malevolent fly if I were to ask you to tell us that you do not know anything about King John? He spent three delightful minutes in assuring himself of the fact that no one exactly remembered the date of Magna Carta. Carol did not hear him. She was completing the roof of a half-timbered town hall. She had found one man in the prairie village who did not appreciate her picture of winding streets and arcades, but she had assembled the town council and dramatically defeated him. Three. Though she was Minnesota-born, Carol was not an intimate of the prairie villages. Her father, the smiling and shabby, the learned and teasingly kind, had come from Massachusetts, and through all her childhood he had been a judge in Mankato, which is not a prairie town, but in its garden-sheltered streets and aisles of elms is white and green New England reborn. Mankato lies between cliffs and the Minnesota River, hard by Traverse to Sioux, where the first settlers made treaties with the Indians and the cattle rustlers once came galloping before hell for leather posses. As she climbed along the banks of the dark river, Carol listened to its fables about the wide land of yellow waters and bleached buffalo-bones to the west, the southern levees and singing darkies and palm-trees toward which it was forever mysteriously gliding. And she heard again the startled bells and thick puffing of high-stacked river-steamers wrecked on sand-reefs sixty years ago. Along the decks, She saw missionaries, gamblers in tall pot-hats, and Dakota chiefs with scarlet blankets. Far-off whistles at night round the river-bend, plunking paddles re-echoed by the pines, and a glow on black sliding waters. Carol's family were self-sufficient in their inventive life, with Christmas a rite full of surprises and tenderness, and dressing-up parties spontaneous and joyously absurd the beasts in the Milford hearth mythology were not the obscene night-animals who jump out of closets and eat little girls, but beneficent and bright-eyed creatures, the Tam-Hatab, who is woolly and blue and lives in the bathroom, and runs rapidly to warm small feet, the ferruginous oil-stove, who purrs and knows stories, and the skidmerig, who will play with children before breakfast if they spring out of bed and close the window at the very first line of the song about puellas, which father sings while shaving." Judge Milford's pedagogical scheme was to let the children read whatever they pleased, and in his brown library Carol absorbed Balzac and Rabelais and Thoreau and Max Muller. He gravely taught them the letters on the backs of the encyclopedias, and when polite visitors asked about the mental progress of the little ones, they were horrified to hear the children earnestly repeating, A-and, and-os, os-bis, bis-cal, cal-cha. Carol's mother died when she was nine. Her father retired from the judiciary when she was eleven and took the family to Minneapolis. There he died two years after. Her sister, a busy proper advisory soul, older than herself, had become a stranger to her even when they lived in the same house. From those early brown and silver days, and from her independence of relatives, Carol retained a willingness to be different from the brisk, efficient, book-ignoring people. An instinct to observe and wonder at their bustle, even when she was taking part in it. But she felt approvingly, as she discovered her career of town planning, she was now roused to being brisk and efficient herself. Four in a month, Carol's ambition had clouded her hesitancy about becoming a teacher had returned. She was not she worried strong enough to endure the routine, and she could not picture herself standing before grinning children and pretending to be wise and decisive. But the desire for the creation of a beautiful town remained when she encountered an item about a small town women's clubs or a photograph of a straggling main street she was homesick for it, she felt robbed of her work. It was the advice of the professor of English which led her to study professional library work in a Chicago school. Her imagination carved and colored the new plan. She saw herself persuading children to read charming fairy tales, helping young men to find books on mechanics, being ever so courteous to old men who were hunting for newspapers. The light of the library, an authority on books! invited to dinners with poets and explorers, reading a paper to an association of distinguished scholars. Five. The last faculty reception before commencement. In five days they would be in the cyclone of final examinations. The House of the President had been massed with palms suggestive of polite undertaking-parlors, and in the library, a ten-foot room with a globe and the portraits of Whittier and Martha Washington, the student orchestra was playing Carmen and Madame Butterfly. Carol was dizzy with music and the emotions of parting. She saw the palms as a jungle, the pink-shaded electric globes as an opaline haze, and the eyeglassed faculty as Olympians. She was melancholy at sight of the mousy girls with whom she had always intended to get acquainted and the half-dozen young men who were ready to fall in love with her. But it was Stuart Snyder whom she encouraged. He was so much manlier than the others. He was an even warm brown, like his new ready-made suit with its padded shoulders. She sat with him, and with two cups of coffee and a chicken patty, upon a pile of presidential overshoes in the coat-closet under the stairs, and as the thin music seeped in, Stuart whispered, I can't stand it! this breaking up after four years, the happiest years of life!" She believed it. Oh, I know! To think that in just a few days we'll be parting and we'll never see some of the bunch again! Carol, you got to listen to me. You always duck when I try to talk seriously to you, but you got to listen to me. I'm going to be a big lawyer, maybe a judge, and I need you, and I'd protect you. His arm slid behind her shoulders. The insinuating music drained her independence. She said mournfully, "'Would you take care of me?' She touched his hand. It was warm, solid. "'You bet I would. We'd have, Lord, we'd have bully times in Yankton, where I'm going to settle. But I want to do something with life.' "'What's better than making a comfy home and bringing up some cute kids?' and knowing nice homey people." It was the immemorial male reply to the restless woman. Thus to the young Sappho spake the melon vendors. thus the captains to Zenobia. And in the damp cave over gnawed bones the hairy suitor thus protested to the woman advocate of matriarchy. In the dialect of Blodgett College, but with the voice of Sappho, was Carol's answer. "'Of course, I know. I suppose that's so. Honestly, I do love children. But there's lots of women that can do housework, but I—well, if you have got a college education, you ought to use it for the world." I know, but you can use it just as well in the home. And gee, Carol, just think of a bunch of us going out on an auto picnic some nice spring evening. Yes, and sleigh-riding in winter and going fishing. The orchestra had crashed into the soldier's chorus, and she was protesting. No, no, you're a dear, but I want to do things. I don't understand myself, but I want... everything in the world. Maybe I can't sing or write, but I know I can be an influence in library work. Just suppose I encourage some boy, and he became a great artist. I will. I will do it. Stuart, dear... I can't settle down to nothing but dishwashing. Two minutes later, two hectic minutes, they were disturbed by an embarrassed couple also seeking the idyllic seclusion of the overshoe closet. After graduation, she never saw Stuart Snyder again. She wrote to him once a week for one month. Six. A year Carol spent in Chicago. Her study of library cataloging, recording, books of reference, was easy and not too somniferous. She reveled in the art institute, in symphonies and violin recitals and chamber music, in the theater and classic dancing. She almost gave up library work to become one of the young women who dance in cheesecloth in the moonlight. She was taken to a certified studio party, with beer, cigarettes, bobbed hair, and a Russian Jewess who sang the Internationale. It cannot be reported that Carol had anything significant to say to the Bohemians. She was awkward with them and felt ignorant, and she was shocked by the free manners which she had for years desired. But she heard and remembered discussions of Freud, Romain-Roland, Syndicalism, the Confederation Generale du Travail, Feminism versus Haremism, Chinese lyrics, Nationalization of Minds, Christian Science, and Fishing in Ontario. She went home, and that was the beginning and the end of her Bohemian life. The second cousin of Carol's sister's husband lived in Winnetka, and once invited her out to Sunday dinner. She walked back through Wilmette and Evanston, discovered new forms of suburban architecture, and remembered her desire to recreate villages. She decided that she would give up library work, and, by a miracle whose nature was not very clearly revealed to her, turn a prairie town into Georgian houses and Japanese bungalows. The next day in library class she had to read a theme on the use of the cumulative index, and she was taken so seriously in the discussion that she put off her career of town planning, and in the autumn she was in the public library of St. Paul. 7. Carol was not unhappy, and she was not exhilarated, in the St. Paul library she slowly confessed that she was not visibly affecting lives. She did at first put into her contact with the patrons a willingness which should have moved worlds, but so few of these stolid worlds wanted to be moved. When she was in charge of the magazine room the readers did not ask for suggestions about elevated essays. They grunted, want to find the Leather Goods Gazette for last February. When she was giving out books the principal query was, Can you tell me of a good, light, exciting love-story to read? My husband's going away for a week." She was fond of the other librarians, proud of their aspirations, and by the chance of propinquity, she read scores of books unnatural to her gay white littleness. Volumes of anthropology with ditches of footnotes filled with heaps of small dusty type. Parisian imagists, Hindu recipes for curry, voyages to the Solomon Islands, theosophy with modern American improvements, treatises upon success in the real estate business. She took walks and was sensible about her shoes and diet. And never did she feel that she was living. She went to dances and suppers at the houses of college acquaintances, sometimes she one-stepped demurely, sometimes, in dread of life slipping past, she turned into a bacchanal, her tender eyes excited, her throat tense as she slid down the room. During her three years of library work several men showed diligent interest in her, the treasurer of a fur manufacturing firm, a teacher, a newspaper reporter, and a petty railroad official. None of them made her more than pause in thought. For months no mail emerged from the mass. Then, at the Marbury's, she met Dr. Will Kennicott. End of Chapter 1